So tonight's next Bible reading is from John 17, verses 6 to 19. John 17, that can be found on page 825 of the Pew Bibles. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you and you have given them to me so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the word hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. Here in some reading. Thanks, Paul. Well, as we come to look at the second instalment of our series, What Would Jesus Pray? Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, please now speak to us as we look at this incredible passage where we hear Jesus pray to you and we pray that as we hear through the ears of the disciples that we would understand more of who you are and how you work in your world and how we fit in. And we pray it to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you can follow along in the talk outlines. Uh, you can rip off your little response slip if you'd like to do so. And you can have a bit of space there to write some more questions for next week and uh, update any details, especially if you'd like to get yourself sent a email through the week from some of the things we're doing. The blanks are on the outline and you can fill them in. And if you're listening online, you can also jump on board to docs.jambrewanglican.com and get yourself your own downloadable copy. Now, as some of you know, um, my... The day that my eldest daughter, Liana, was married was the day that I cried more than I can ever remember. I, I planned to hold it all together. I thought, this can't be too hard. Uh, but it was a totally unrealistic expectation on the, myself, really. Uh, the, it all started because we handed out little letters that we'd written to Liana and she wrote, uh, that we wrote for her and, and she started to read them and then she started to well up with tears and we started to well up with tears. I thought, oh dear, we've really started too early today. We're still in our jammies, literally, and we're already sobbing. Um, it, it was a significant day and a significant time. And so what we had written 
had an extra significance than if we just happened to do it on any other particular day, or even for a birthday. It was kind of in a different sort of league. See, there are other times when a person will write something that has extra importance. It might be that when a person's retiring, they'll, they'll say something to all of their colleagues and say, I want you to remember these things, and away they go. Or perhaps when a person's close to death, and they say some profound words, these, these kind of famous last words, they, they're famous because they're so significant. We are looking today again at the prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he died, and it is a very significant moment. Last week we looked at the first five verses of chapter 17 of John's Gospel where we see that Jesus prayed for his own glory so that the Father would receive his glory. And today we're looking at the second section. It's the longest bit, really. It's going from verses 6 through to 19. And we see here that Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for the 12, well, kind of the 12 minus 1, as we'll come to in a little while. He's praying specifically for the people who he had that dinner with right there at that time. They're the ones who he's had this extraordinary discussion with that is recorded for us in 13, 14, 15 and 16 of John's Gospel, the so-called farewell discourse. And now, having hung out with all of these disciples for that evening, he now prays for them in front of them. And in fact, Jesus wants his disciples to overhear his prayer. They want him. He wants them to overhear his prayer so that he can tell them what he's praying for them and then, in due course, write it down so that we here in Jamboree in 2019 can also be listening to the same words that Jesus is praying. And so, in one sense, these words are not prayed for us. They're prayed specifically for those 11 people right there. But in verses 20 to 26, which we'll look at in the third of the three parts next week, we will actually see the words that he specifically prays for us, we who will believe in due course. And that bit next week will say, verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So it's kind of like this is this verse that says, what I've been doing is praying just for the disciples, these disciples, and now I'm going to pray for everyone, which includes the saints here in Jamboree and well beyond that. But even though what Jesus prayed for, and we're looking tonight, is something he prayed for for 11 people, I think there's an awful lot that he prayed for them that also applies to us as believers in Jesus. And so we're going to kind of try and understand it in its original context of talking about the 11, but also then see how we can apply it to us. And I think there's a lot there that transfers. Well, the prayer starts off with Jesus telling God, his Father, why he's praying for them. And he says in verse 6, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. See, Jesus says to his father that he's done his job. He has revealed the father's name to his people. He says, it says there, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from the world. Well, more literally it is, I have revealed your name. To the people, And this is going to be quite important in a moment when we, we dig in a bit deeper into some of these verses. Uh, these, these disciples have always belonged to God the Father, but it wasn't until Jesus met the disciples that they actually knew God. And they needed to actually know what God was like. They needed to know his name. 
See, this is still true today. God knows who will be saved. He knows his children. God knows his children. But it's not until they actually hear the message of Jesus that a person knows God, that they know his name, his, his full revelation of himself. If some of you here were born in Christian homes. There's never a time that you've walked on this earth when you haven't realised that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour. And that's awesome. That's a terrific blessing. Some of you were much older, or maybe just a bit older, but whenever it is, you can think, I know that there was a time when there was a before, but there's also an after. And I know the moment that I came to know God because I heard the gospel about Jesus. And there might even be some of you tonight who haven't actually made that step yet. And this could, right now, be a very key moment in the way that you understand who God is and who he knows of you. You see, as Jesus revealed the Father to these disciples, we are told that they kept his word. Verse 6. They haven't done it perfectly. Right throughout the Gospels, we see that they were spectacular in some of their failures. But what they have done is they have followed the heart of the message. That when Jesus came there and said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father, they have seen Jesus and said, I want to follow you. They've been captivated by Christ. And they may not have fully got everything that it meant, but even with the limited information and the unreliable faith, they've said, I am one of Jesus's. I'm going to follow him. They're a fairly motley crew, really, but you know they are at the heart of the church. And Jesus says that these first disciples understood that Jesus depends on his Father. They understood something in the link between Jesus, the Son, and God the Father. He says in verse 7 and 8, Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. It's kind of a little bit like Jesus is there saying to the Father, I want to tell you how they've gone. This is the stuff they've done. And really, they've done a pretty good job. They've, They've got a whole lot of stuff pretty clear in all of this they know that that jesus message was actually from the father and they realized that the message was that jesus came from the father that he didn't act on his own authority he didn't make this up himself all that he did and said was from god the father jesus acted under the father's authority and this is very important it's not like jesus is some sort of lone cowboy saying oh well i reckon i'll give this a shot myself He is under the rule of his father. And the disciples knew this. They didn't draw some sort of wedge between the father and the son. They were, as Jesus said, one. Now this is a fresh reminder of what we call the Trinity. See, we believe that there is one God who is three persons. One God, three persons. The father is God. The son, Jesus, is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet, they are one God, not three. And when you see one, you see them all. When you know Jesus, you know the Father. The disciples got this somehow, you know, pretty early on. They realized this. And I've got to say, if you find the Trinity to be tricky, you're not not alone in all of this. You're in very good company. Uh, Whole weird Christian cults have been set up because they didn't get the Trinity. And they said that we've got a better way of working this out. 
Fortunately, I think we've understood it clearly, even though it can sometimes be tricky to, to sort of say 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. It's like, hang on, that doesn't make sense. And in a sense, it doesn't. But it's revealed to us clearly in the scriptures and we need to believe that Jesus really is God, the Spirit really is God, the Father really is God, and yet there's only one God. And when you see the Son, you've seen the Father. You've got to kind of hold all this together and don't get too stressed about it. And so with this sort of hanging in our mind, and it seems that the disciples got it, Jesus now says why he's praying for these disciples. There's a reason for it. And he says in verse 9, My prayer is not for the world, but for those you've given me, because they belong to you. Jesus at this point says that he's praying for the disciples, but not for the world. He's not praying for the world, he's praying for the disciples. And I wonder if that surprises you at all. Does it surprise you that Jesus would not be praying for the world? I mean, we pray for the world. I mean, it's even there in our news sheet, prays for our world for the world you know uh, why why would he not pray for the world because after all you think about it for god so loved the world that he gave his only son and the verse later it says god sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him god loves the world jesus loves the world but we also need to realize that not everybody who is in the world will be saved. Many people will reject Jesus, and because they've rejected Jesus, they've rejected the Father. They will then be, obviously, the ones that the Father did not choose. Jesus is praying not for all the people in the world who heard his... or not all the people, he's praying for those who have heard his message and have become followers of Jesus. That is who he's praying for. And the reason he's praying just for the disciples here is because the disciples are a gift from the Father to the Son so that Jesus will bring him glory. Verse 10, he says, All who are, God sent, uh, sorry, all who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Remember what we heard last week? Jesus gets the glory because the Father gave the disciples to Jesus. And we kind of get swept up in this whole big cosmic process. Uh, as God is getting glorified, we are the byproduct, kind of like Vegemite from beer, like I said last week. You know, we get swept up in it all with this guarantee of salvation because Jesus and the Father are just so dead set keen on glorifying each other. We are just dragged along and get eternal life through it all. It's pretty cool. It ultimately, as we've seen here and a bit earlier on, we can have eternal confidence because Jesus wants glory. We have eternal confidence because Jesus is so hungry for glory, and rightly so, we get swept along. But even as we are confidently saved by Jesus, that's a bit of a problem. And this is kind of the sticking point of what he's praying for. And that is, he's leaving us. Or he's leaving them. And they need some support. He says in verse 11, the first half, he says, Now, Father, I'm departing from this world. But they're staying in the world. But I'm coming to you. Uh, the Father already knows this, obviously, but he's saying it in front of the other disciples. But he's saying to the Father, I'm leaving, they're staying, I'm coming to be with you. Uh, 
And so this is a reason that he's praying to them. Because the disciples need prayer support. You better believe it. Jesus is their sustenance. He is their hope. He is the one in whom they have met the Father. In him, who is the true radiance of God's glory. And now he's going. Imagine the kind of stirring up feeling in their stomach as they realise how serious this is. I mean, Jesus is not going to say something to the Father that's not true. He's saying, I am leaving. And so with all of this, he desperately needs to pray for them. And so he says to the Father, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. He says, you've given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name. Uh, one, our version says, now protect them by the power of your name. But very, very literally it says, it says, now keep them in your name. Now, this is this translation is fine, but... Uh, if you get a little bit more literal, as, as some versions are, like I said, this is fine, but if you get a little bit more literal, you see this theme of name, name, name. I talked about name a bit earlier on, and then you've got name here. It's fair enough to say that he's saying to Father, protect them by the power of his name, but I think this is a little bit more than that. I think he's saying, I want these disciples to be kept in your name, kept in your character. You see, a person's name stands for who they are. You know, Jeffrey Rush, just in this past week, has been awarded tons of cash because his name has been dragged through the mud. His reputation, his character, who he stands for. See, Jesus is literally, literally saying, keep the disciples in your name, in your character, in who you are, who you've revealed yourself. Which kind of is another way of saying that he's praying that they'll act like God, that they will be acting in his name, kept in his name. And I think that makes sense because of the next bit of the sentence where he says, keep them in your name so they will be united just as we are. I think there's a better connection there. You see, Jesus is praying the disciples will be united with each other just like the Son and the Father are united. He says, I want them to be united with us too. And they'll do that if they are kept in his name, if they're kept in his character as he's been revealed to them. Uh, now, this all teaches us a very, very important lesson in unity. Now, we, we love unity. How does it really work? Well, we need to keep in mind that our Christian unity needs to be based on truth. It needs to be based on truth. This is really, really important. You know, we're heading into a federal election in just five weeks' time, if you hadn't noticed. Uh, there's going to be a major issue because the major parties are going to stand up there and say, we are all united, aren't we? Yes, we are. You know, and there's, we know there's cracks there. Some of them are massive cracks, but it's like the, it's almost like the party who can stand united for five weeks and not have somebody go bananas is actually possibly going to get across the line. We in the Christian church feel a similar thing. That is, if we keep bickering amongst ourselves in our church or with the other denominations or anyone who calls himself a Christian, uh, then we think, well, if we can stop that, it's going to be more effective as a witness to the world. And there's some truth in that, of course. Uh, it'd be nice if there was only one denomination, wouldn't there, really? But it's important that there are 
different denominations if it's because of different truths of which there is only one. Our unity needs to be in the name of the Father and in the Son. It needs to be a unity that is consistent with what God's revealed to us about his character through the Holy Spirit in the Bible. See, there's a, an attraction for us to look and act unified with any church that calls itself Christian. And, and look, there are a lot of benefits in that, of course. But true unity can only come in truth. We can't have true unity with each other if we don't have unity in God's name. And that's why we need to be kept in God's name. That's why we need, as we are kept in God's name, we will then have unity with the Father and the Son. The unity that's based in this truth. And as we get to know God better, we'll enjoy more unity with Christ and the Father and with each other. But there's another reason we need to keep in the name. And that is we need keeping in God's name so we don't fall away. It is tragic when we see someone who is a friend of Jesus turn their back on him and say, I'm no longer a Christian. Breaks our heart, doesn't it? And we fear it for our friends and family at times. You know, very, very hard. Even on the day before Jesus died, we see an example of this. Possibly it's the most tragic. I don't know. But, well, he talks about it here in verse 12. Jesus says to his father, During my time here, I protected my disciples by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. It's talking about Judas, Judas Iscariot. They've just had dinner together. It's the very, very important Passover meal, and they've gathered together, and then Judas leaves, and Jesus knows that he is going to betray him, and it is tragic. How does it make sense of that? I mean, it's not like Judas has had a bad teacher. You know, you, you might go really bad in your maths exam and it might say, well, it's because your teacher couldn't add up. Oh, fair enough. But it's not like you're going to say, well, he can't be a very good Christian because he's only had Jesus as his teacher. It's like, now Jesus goes all right with that Christian stuff. You know, it can't be that. So how do, we, how do we get our heads around Judas falling away? How could he be in this tight-knit community of a dozen men who, who together were in the very presence of the one who created the universe with his very words. And how could you do that? See him walk on water and, and bring Lazarus from the dead and yet say, I'm over it. Well, the only reason is because it's foretold in the scriptures. It's there in the Old Testament that this would actually happen. It's no surprise. It all happened ultimately to, due to the sovereignty of God. We use that expression, sovereignty of God, Who's a sovereign? Sovereign's a king, a queen, a ruler. The sovereignty of God is about God ruling everything. God is sovereign even in this man who walked away from Jesus. It was foretold in the scriptures. And I reckon that's satisfying. It makes sense of why he's not there with Jesus now. But it's still hard to get our heads around, isn't it? We've still got to grapple with that. The idea that Judas Iscariot would be destined for hell just, I don't know, just seems incompatible with this picture we have of God's love and justice. Now, how is it fair that he'd be chosen to be rejected by God like this? Now, we can't 
really fully understand it. But for what it's worth, it's clear in the Bible that Judas knew he made a choice and he was as guilty as sin. He, he knew he did it. He was conscious of the decision and he knew that he deserved to be judged. And in the end, he ended his own life. And the tragedy just got even more tragic. He was fully aware of his decision that he made by his own full free choice. And yet, God, we know, is completely in control of this as well. And so we need to realise afresh that God is in control of evil as much as he is in control of good. Can you imagine praying to God if he wasn't actually sovereign over everything? You know, you say, God, would you please bring rain? Or God, would you please heal my friend from cancer? And God, if he was able to actually specifically tell us the answer to a prayer in writing, you know, text message, you know, from God, beep, beep, oh, well, yeah, he said, sorry, mate, cancer's not my thing. I don't have control over that. Or I can't really do the wind and the waves. You know, that was sort of a party trick from way long ago. It's, really? God is in control of everything. And that is why we pray to him with such confidence. There is nothing outside of his care and control. Nothing that he is not sovereign over. The alternative is just, I think, incomprehensible. God is the boss of the lot. And that gives us full confidence. And it's also wonderful to know that he is full of truth and grace. And with all of this, now Jesus asks for something else for us, for the disciples, and I think for us as well. In verse 13, he says to the Father, I'm coming now to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they'd be filled with my joy. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus shared these things with them so they would be filled with joy. He wants his disciples filled with joy. Now, do you think that they're all sitting around having a little happy ripper, you beauty party right there the night before Jesus is about to die? Do you think they're kind of popping the champagne corks like that sort of celebration of joy, joy, joy? No! I mean, apart from the fact that, that Jesus is the Lord and he's walking amongst them and as they looked in his face, they saw the face of God. Apart from the loss of that, they're, they're losing a friend. A friend with whom they, they dined and, and laughed and, and had fun and played practical jokes, I reckon. You know, they were doing their stuff together and now he's going. Very sad. And Jesus is praying for joy. Is it because they're so bitterly upset? I don't think so. Joy is not just about being happy and smiling all the time. It's a kind of it's a, a deep, what is it, contentment. It's about a certainty when things are really, really bad and really, really weird and really, really just overwhelming that you can have a grounding in who Jesus is and what God is doing in his world. I think that is an aspect of joy. It's about this stability in standing upon the foundations of life on God the rock. That is what joy is like. When everything goes bad, you can say, I know that my world is crumbling around me, but Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's a certainty there. That is the joy. And what's more, this joy might even bring hatred will bring hatred. Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, Father, and the world hates them 
because they don't belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. The world hates the disciples because they don't fit in. They don't fit into the world. The, the disciples are misfits. It's like they're kids at school that don't fit in and they get bullied. It's horrible when we see that. It's horrible when you've experienced it. It's horrible when you've done it. But when you see someone who doesn't fit in, they really stick out, don't they? It's the same with us today, isn't it? I'd already done a lot of preparation on this sermon before everything kind of hit the fan with Israel Folau during the week. Um, he posted words on social media, you, you know this, that uh, basically it looks like you'll get the sack. Um, although there's a whole lot of interesting things happening behind the scenes right now with a lot of lawyers. It'd be very interesting to see what happens. But the point is, uh, he, re he retweets, also, reposts all sorts of stuff on, on Instagram if you look at his, his feed. This particular one was very clear in condemning homosexuals and it didn't fit in well with what the world wanted. The world didn't like what he has to say. Uh, to be honest, his evangelistic strategy is not one that I would personally choose, but he is passionate about protecting people from hell, and I think that is to be honoured. Uh, the world is not going to like that. You know, this world that doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in heaven and hell is still really angry at somebody who says that someone's going to hell. Anyway, go and work that one out. But you see, it's this idea of sending someone to hell. It's kind of a rude way, you know, go to hell sort of thing. That's kind of what it's sort of Israel's saying to those who are homosexuals through his, his, his post on Instagram. They don't like Israel. And they don't like Christians. Surprised? It shouldn't be. It was always supposed to be the case. The moment you choose to follow Jesus is the moment you give up membership of this world. You kind of rip up your world passport. You can't have a foot in both camps. When you choose to join the kingdom of God, you choose to leave the kingdom of the world. And the world will kick and scream and bully you. And it's not nice. So what should we do? Leave the world? That'd be much nicer, wouldn't it? Kind of set up our own little kingdom here and say the only way you can get in is if you can recite some, you know, sing some Colin songs or something like that. That'll get you in. Well, it would be nice to do that in a way. I'm not sure it would be the perfect place. Well, I know that there's still sin in the fall and you wouldn't want me to be living with you full time if you wanted a slice of heaven. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we're not going to make it just right. What's more, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be stuck in the world. Awkward, sticking out like a sore thumb, kind of like wearing uniform on a mufti day. You know, that's kind of us in this world. What do we do? Leave the world? Well, Jesus says, verse 15, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Jesus doesn't want us to leave. He's saying, says, you're with Jesus? Stick it out. It's going to get hot, but stay cool. And he wants us to be protected. He prays to the Father for protection for us. Isn't it lovely that Jesus would pray that for us? Praying for protection. See, we're going to continue to be hated by the world and we should expect that and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And in fact, if the world has never hated you, then, I don't know, it, it, maybe should that cause you some alarm? 
maybe if you fit in just a little bit too well. I've got to say, I find this really hard to get right. Um, on the one hand, you know, I, we want to be winsome towards the world. We, we want to be able to be friends with people in the world. And, and I think there's, there's warrant for that in the scriptures. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. I reckon this is a kind of good evangelistic strategy, isn't it? We want to be in the world. We don't want to be jerks just for the sake of being jerks. Uh, we want actually to, people to see how, how nice we are as because we have the Spirit of God in us. And then say, what is it about you that's a bit different? It's like, Thanks for asking. <laughs> Take a seat. <laughs> Buckle up. You know, it's kind of like we want to be have had that opportunity. And I think there's something about that. Gentle and respectful. I like that. Uh, and I think that if we are gentle and if we are respectful, then we will be asked about Jesus. It does happen. And if it's not happening, keep praying. But I also got to realise that ultimately I'm a foreigner in this world. I don't belong here anymore. I might be desperate to fit in with all the cool kids, but at the end of the day, I'm not one of them. You're not one of them if you're a follower of Jesus. If people at school or work or in your club or your whatever it is just don't get you, then that's right. Because they shouldn't just get you because you're different. You're supposed to be different. Get over it. That's what life is as a follower of Jesus. We also have another prayer that he prays. He says in this, in verse 15b, he prays to the Father that, that we would be kept safe from the evil one. Interesting, isn't it? It's the night before Jesus is about to die. Now, the next day, Jesus is going to defeat the devil. Right there on the cross, Satan will be defeated and Jesus can say, it is finished. And that's wonderful news, isn't it? Right at that point, death is defeated and there's a certainty of eternity for those who trust in Jesus. You know, we, we believe this, we know this, and we see the proof of it on Easter Sunday when the, temp, when the whole tomb is emptied completely of Jesus. But even though that is the case, the devil still tries to trip us up. That's his job. He runs around and tries to annoy us, it tries to really harm us. But the good news is Jesus has defeated the devil and has given us his spirit. Before that, there was a line that I didn't put up on the screen, but I'll put it there now for you. And that is that this is related to the fact that the devil doesn't want us witnessing to the world. Of course he doesn't, does he? The devil doesn't want us to go around and show people the love of Jesus by what we do and say. He doesn't want that at all. So the devil is doing everything he can to undermine us. But the good news is that Jesus has defeated the devil. He's defeated the devil and has given us the spirit. Well, finally, as we get right into the end, we see this last little bit that Jesus prays. He prays a specific prayer for his disciples. And I think it also works for us as well. Verse 17 and 18, he says, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. 
Uh, Jesus is praying that the disciples would be made holy by God. See, God is holy because he's separate. The priests were holy because they were separate. The temple had this holy bit that was separate. And so he's saying, my people are separate from the world, like you are separate. And so make them separate by your truth. See, we hear the truth of God and that makes us want to be different. The truth makes us holy, makes us separate. And so he says, he prays that, that the Lord would teach them your word, which is truth. See, holiness is about this separation. And when we are separated, we will not be stained by the world. We won't be discoloured by the grease and the grime of those who don't know Jesus. One of the songs we sang last week is that the vilest believer who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. It's a terrific line, isn't it? That is what happens at the point when we follow Jesus. We are seen as holy in God's sight. The moment you trust Jesus, you are holy in God's sight. Now, I know that. I know that Jesus looks at me as holy, and I, I praise God for that, because I tell you what, I, I look at myself and think, I know that I'm not holy in, in every way, in a lot of ways. And I just, I know bit by bit that, Day by day, there are bits where I get a couple of wins and, the, and the, the Lord, by his spirit, makes me more and more like God, bit by bit by bit, and then I fall off and then back and forth and so on. But the point is that this is what the normal Christian life is like. We are considered to be holy in God's sight. That's justification, the technical word. But the process of becoming holy as we're looked at as being holy is called, is called sanctification. And so we are sanctified over time, even as God looks at us as holy. And this is all a gift from start to finish, which we see in the final verse. Jesus says, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so they can be made holy by your truth. See, ultimately, the only way that you and I can be holy in God's sight is by a gift from someone else. We could only be holy because of a gift we were drowning and could only be rescued by a lifesaver. We were filthy and could only be made clean by the blood of Jesus. And this Friday, Good Friday, we will celebrate that again. Jesus says, I give myself as a holy sacrifice. A sacrifice that is holy, that is a gift. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for praying for your disciples and for what it is that you've prayed for us. And we ask now that you would help us to be holy in this world, this world that hates us and longs for us not to be able to be like Christ as we walk in this planet. And we pray, Father, that you would give us boldness to stand out so that people would see us and ask about what we believe so we can point them to the mercy of Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.